0: This podcast was made possible by the generous support of our Patreon patrons. They provide us with the resources we need to produce each episode. You can join them at 90 milesfromneedles.com/slash Patreon.
1: The sun is a giant blowtorch aimed at your face. There ain't no shade nowhere. Let's hope you brought enough water. It's time for 90 Miles from Needles, the desert protection podcast with your hosts, Chris Clark and Alicia Pike.
2: Hey, welcome to 90 Miles from Needles. This is Chris Clark.
0: And I'm Alicia Pike.
2: And we are coming to you once again from beautiful Sand Draw in Riverside and San Bernardino counties in California, home to a thriving population of desert dry wash woodland trees and shrubs. We're sitting in the shade of a beautiful ironwood tree, Olnea to Ironwoods are evergreen deciduous trees. The leaves fall off once a year but new ones grow just before the old ones fall off. The seeds are edible and it puts off a lot of seeds. Uh, They're really easy to sprout. I have two ironwood trees growing in my yard that are a foot and a half tall that I sprouted from seed I collected in 2020.
0: Oh, now I'm going to start looking at the seed pods here.
2: And what most people know about it is the wood, the heartwood of an ironwood. It's almost more geology rather than...
0: Because it's so hard. Yeah. It's more like a rock. Yep. I'm going to try and find a couple of viable seeds to take home. It's okay to gather seeds here? Yeah. Not sure I'm gonna find any.
2: Yeah, the wood is what a lot of people know ironwood from, even if they've never seen the tree, because the heartwood is just really hard and dense. And I've tried to saw through pieces of it, the ironwood driftwood that you find in the desert. And even if you have power tools, it'll dull your saw blade, Wow. (laughs) trying to saw through it.
0: What, you say people would know of it because of how hard the wood is, what applications? Would you see
2: ironwood used in? In souvenir stores, mostly. What do you mean? Little carvings of desert critters or similar things, sometimes sea life. It was the, the Seri Indians in Sonora who developed this home, home art industry mm-hmm. back in the 50s. And there was this one guy who'd find dead ironwood and carve it and started selling the carvings and so other people in his family and his community started doing the same thing with individual styles and then local non-SERI people realized there was money to be made so they started going around and cutting Oh uh, geez. cutting the trees and sometimes the live trees the SERI had only used dead wood Yeah and using machine tools to carve things and so if you find an ironwood sculpture You can tell whether it's a seri carving or a non-seri carving, because the non-seri carvings tend to have like more angular lines and hatching put in by the tools and the seri carvings tend to be more fluid, smoother lines. And anyway, most people would know the ironwood from, from wood carvings, generally in souvenir stores in the Southwestern part of the US and Northern Mexico. But there's just, there's a whole lot more to the ironwood than it's wood do tell. puts out this abundant crop of seeds like pounds and pounds of seed in a good year from a medium-sized tree. They have these little pods They're in the bean family so they look like bean pods. We're sitting out here and there was just a rain and if you dig down just not even one finger knuckle deep yeah. that's enough water to probably soak into a seed through a seed coat.
0: Yeah but then when's the next rain gonna come? Well it's this tiny precious little seedling that I mean, this is what I deal with when I'm at home trying to propagate native trees and shrubs. It's, God, they, I try not to give them too much because I feel like that would kill them because they're used to not having a deluge of resources. But it's amazing how out here, just the right combination of circumstances perpetually creates oasis like this. I don't know, this isn't a proper oasis, but... Desert
2: dry wash woodland, so it's a linear oasis. But That's what I was thinking. I was out in a place pretty much like this, though so it's about 30 miles south of here in the Chukwala Valley, in the north end of a new national monument we're hoping to get established. And it was, here we have a bunch of Palo Verde and a bunch of creosote and ephedra and some acacia and ironwood is like a minor constituent of this wash. There, the wash is probably 50% or more ironwood. Mm. So it was really interesting, but I was there, it's been a couple of dry years and then this year is wetter than the last couple of winters. I saw a bunch of baby ironwoods coming up the day before yesterday and it's clear that they have just come up in the last couple of weeks because I mean, you you have the seed leaves still on them. Yeah. Sometimes the seed coats are still on the seed leaves right. and then you have the first true leaves coming out and they're sort of that compound pinnate bean family leaf. Yeah. And it's just they're in the middle of a sandy expanse in the middle of the Colorado desert mm. in California.
0: Most of them will die.
2: <laughs> Most of them will die.
0: I watched something similar happen at a residential property where we had a really good wet year, I think it was year before last. It feels like it was at least two years ago. And out in the backyard they have a bunch of different Palo Verde trees on the side and I see those seeds on the ground all year round, all year long, but that year combination was right and the, just what you described, the two first seed leaves and then four of the first growth leaves. And these suckers were everywhere. There was like a hundred of them. And I brought home half a dozen, probably killed the ball, trying to mm-hmm. transplant. And absolutely none of them survived. Not a single one Yep. continued to grow after that. And hundreds of these little seedling babies. It was really magical to see them. And then they died. That wasn't so magical. No. <laughs> it was reality.
2: I have two seedlings in my yard, but I think that's out of about 30 that I got to germinate. And germinating in the little nursery pots, the like six pack flats that are a little bit deeper than the ones you buy begonias in because tap roots. Yeah. And they germinate readily. I put them in five gallon containers for a bit, except for two that I planted in the ground directly. And the ones I put in five gallon containers died. The containers are black, they absorb heat, and was just too much. But the ones that were in the ground, with almost no supplemental water, really. I watered them a few times here and there, but but I didn't water them that much. And those seedlings are two feet tall at this point. Oh. Big arching sprays of beautiful, very thorny <laughs> stems with little foliage on them. The juvenile foliage of the ironwood is considerably smaller than the mature foliage. The leaves are just probably an eighth the size, but. They're making me very happy, and I feel an immediate kinship for the seedlings that I see out in the wild now, because I know that, that they're tiny. They're, they're days old, yeah. and they're coming out, and they're just, like, full of hope.
0: I think we all find babies cute, yeah, even if they're plant babies.
2: I don't know. It's just, it's like an unsung tree in a lot of ways. We have a gorgeous forest of ironwood trees along Interstate 10 in Southern California, east of the Coachella Valley. And I don't think anybody but botanists knows that it's there. It's a tree that is so revered in some places that there is a national monument that's devoted to protecting <coughs> the ironwood forest. And it's called, oddly enough, Ironwood Forest National Monument. And, and that's a lovely ironwood forest in that monument. Right now, Alicia is in the middle of a tree.
0: Watch out for the piñacate right there if you're coming behind me. Oh, He's yeah. got his little butt up in the air.
2: Yeah, he's in attack mode, for sure. You're gonna get stunk at.
0: I can't smell it. One of my neighbors who grew up out here, she finds it so offensive and pungent, she's gotta move. And I'm sitting right next to her like, I cannot even smell that. I find that fascinating.
2: Yeah, heart sticks her nose right up on him. Oh, there's another one. She
0: goes, oh, you can't smell that.
2: <laughs> so this is, it's an awfully nice shade tree for the desert yeah it's got actual broad leaves on it even though they're small absorbs a lot of light
0: yeah it creates good shade very sharp thorns though holy moly yes yep and they're rather disguised in the green zones you can barely see them but that'll go right through your skin oh hi who you got grasshopper wildlife in the wild
2: So where we are now is in the middle of a wash sand draw that is actually where we recorded our first ever episode, and we're back. The wash is about half a mile wide at this point, it gets wider upstream, so to speak, and there's just an abundance of all different kinds of plants. Have you ever seen a creosote this tall?
0: Yes but that's because I pay attention to creosote an awful lot. Their supposed max height is around 12 feet. This is there. But I've seen them taller than 12 feet. Nothing like 20 feet or anything, but this looks like a nice clonal grouping, so this has got some age to it. What I find most interesting about this creosote is that it looks like it's been denuded at the base by critters, not anytime recently, and the instead of growing as more of a bush it looks like a group of sticks stuck Mm -hmm. like straight into the soil there's a couple of classic wonky creosote branches here but it's interesting how this one's growing pack rat midden Yep. i love how industrious they are with bringing building materials like those sticks and flat pieces of bark are so organized to me and then over here they, it's like they've fortified the entrance with small pebbles you see that over there. <coughs> they do that in my neighborhood, oh, yeah. too They'll block entry points with a bunch of little stones And it's so funny because it looks so intentional and architectural, but it's a rat house they are really good at what they do working with what they got. There's the
2: Erica mountains a-r-i-c-a over there. It's a <laughs> very cute little mountain range. Baby mountains.
0: What is this? Oh, it looks like a stump. Oh, that's got a really thick trunk there.
2: Yes, we're appreciating Palo Verdes in the middle of the Ironwood episode, but that's <laughs> okay. And look at this ephedra grown right next to it. That's like a Japanese garden pruning job.
0: It really does look like it has specific eruptions at the end of each branch. Now, is that an ironwood that has the base, the central trunk over there?
2: That is an ironwood, and it's...
0: Okay, if we're gonna go that far.
2: It's a classic glamour one. Here, okay. That
0: was a cool breeze. It was warm there. Yeah, it's lovely. Uh, walked right into a cool breeze. A classic, beautiful
2: tree-shaped tree, ironwood tree.
0: Yeah, the canopy is not touching the ground on this one like a lot of the others.
2: Rabbits do like to eat the leaves and the twigs, so not too surprising. And lots of little seed pods.
0: Now these thorns are a little more obvious than the other tree. These thorns have all turned black, which is very helpful.
2: Yep. If you are introduced to an ironwood at a social gathering of some sort, do not assume that it's a good idea to shake hands with the ironwood because we have thorns that are on this tree. They look to be about five millimeters long, maybe a fifth of an inch or so. And they are very thorny. Yeah,
0: very sharp like that one just punctured my skin and i barely touched it (laughs) didn't really need that example set for myself but okay
2: but there is there's obviously a point at which they fall off because i'm looking at this branch this older branch still has some thorns on it yeah and then
0: yeah the older branches they start to wear off and split although it seems like maybe the really
2: old ones grow new thorns because yeah
0: look at the holes those are huge back there but Anyway. Not a tree to climb.
2: Not a tree to climb, unless you have leather skin. You gotta do what you gotta do to keep your moisture and your nitrogen in a place like this. This is a good tortoise habitat here.
0: Yeah, this looks like it might've been a more significant opening. Yep. Uro-shaped, but it caved in.
2: So I guess it makes sense that we're came out here to talk about ironwoods, and there's just so much other stuff going on here in the ironwood forest, other than things being ironwoods. It's like a whole ecosystem out here, depending on these leguminous trees. Yeah. Odds are, in a vegetative community like this, a lot of the plants are connected by underground networks of roots and fungal threads. Something like 80% of known plant species have a vast mycorrhizal partner, if not more than one. And that's certainly true in the desert. And so even with all the cool stuff that we have seen walking around up on this side of the earth's surface, there's probably a whole lot going on that we're just missing underneath.
0: I always wonder what the pattern looks like underneath as compared to the pattern that I can see above. Yep. I thought about that with this tree earlier.
2: Because we know for certain that a lot of these trees at least have the root partners that allow them to take atmospheric nitrogen and turn it into plant food, including the ironwoods and the palo verdes and the acacias, mesquites and smoke trees. Uh, the iron mountains look so nice from here. Love the light this time of day. that just draws out the topography of the mountains.
0: Oh yeah. I like to say when you can see all the wrinkles. Yep. <laughs> you wanna go find another ironwood tree? I say we go that way. There's a nice looking tall one over there. Oh, there's a, real tall one over there
2: yeah somewhere about a mile up is the tallest one i have seen anywhere ever
0: oh last time we were out here the palo verdes were all leafed out yep quite a startling contrast this looks like a hangout spot for somebody
2: this is a glorious tree
0: yeah you can walk right into the middle of it oh there's another stink bug looks like this might also be like a bed down hangout spot for I haven't seen any identifiable tracks, but I would say either deer, coyote, or bobcat.
2: I have seen coyote here. I have seen a lot of quail.
0: Do you see how worn down that base of the tree is? And how the leaf litter is more decomposed in this area than it is right here? Something clearly walks in and out of here all the time.
2: Yep, yeah, there are jackrabbits and cottontails out here. I do not know about cats, so I would not be surprised if there were lions on occasion. Certainly deer, definitely mule deer.
0: This isn't big enough for deer. I retract that.
2: But coyotes and rabbits for sure.
0: And it's linking up with this other one where I felt like this-
2: Oh, it's some coyote scat right here. Look at that.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna guess pack of coyotes. This is like a stopping spot for them. And I know they like to break up their packs and hang out sometimes very close, but in two different locations. And underneath this tree, like this looks like where maybe the scout hangs out. Maybe we make our way to that other big ironwood. There's lots of scat now that I'm outside of that tree. I wonder how regularly they visit this spot. It's really tough to read data now since it rained yesterday. There's so many pack rat middens nearby that all they gotta do is hang out under that tree and be quiet. I'm sure somebody's gonna run by. Wow, that looks like it's almost three stories.
2: Yep that is fantastic that it's like a whole hidden private world in there that's inaccessible to large mammals do you see the size of
0: that house that's in there yep that very well could be a pack rat midden but i'm curious if that might be something else entirely that is insane oh sounds like we got a little bird man i wonder who lives in there that's huge
2: Definitely Holy smells shit, like it keeps going. Definitely smells like rat pee to me.
0: Okay, yeah. Look at how they've there's an entry hole right there yep. with the rat poops. Look at how they've taken advantage of the mud caking, and this is a huge nest. Wow! Look at that space in the middle. Coyotes hang out in there. Yep, for sure. There's really something so like gross, grossly beauty. It's like looks half dead, and gnarly and scary like it's it should be in a forest where bad things happen but that's only half the tree the other half the tree looks like heaven respite food shelter and then this bottom bit is just am I in a Disney forest right now It's so animated in here
2: Talking about ironwoods, Olmea tesota one of the most beautiful trees in the southwest deserts, we thought, who better to talk to than P.D. Muschietti, who has been extolling the virtues of desert native trees, shrubs, forbs, wildflowers, plants, animals for decades on his show Growing Native in KXEI in Tucson. And uh, P.D.? Thank you for going through all the technical hassles that we both endured just now to uh, to join us here at 90 Miles from Needles.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. How sweet. When you shot me a note and said, let's talk about ironwoods, I thought, oh, man, that tree uh, just brings up a lot of memories. And when I lived in, outside Tucson in the desert for many years in an ironwood and saguaro blue Palo Verde mesquite forest. Yeah, let's talk about ironwoods. I, I love the tree. It, it's unique to the Sonoran Desert. How lucky is that? It's just an amazing tree.
2: Absolutely wonderful. I,
3: I'm not from Southern Arizona. I came out to Arizona to go to college way back when, but when I first discovered ironwood trees, and there was a funny area northwest of Tucson out in the desert where it was developing slow, but where they grew a lot of citrus. Ironwoods were an indication of where you could grow citrus because of their cold tolerance or lack thereof of cold tolerance. So if there was an ironwood forest, this was going to be this great spot to grow citrus. It's over by you, right? It goes into Southern California, but it's just in the Sonoran Desert, this magnificent tree. And I don't know, when I discovered them, I moved out to the desert. And here I am in an ironwood forest. And here's a giant, very spiny Tree that flowers. It's in the pea family, Fabaceae, and it flowers these glorious lavender flowers. And you're going, you're just in awe. It was just a, it's magical. It's just this great magical tree.
0: I saw some amazing photos online about how the ironwoods can go through extreme environmental stress, where the stumps, uh, you know, are burned or dried, cracked and split, and then. 20 years later a new sprout will come out and while that stump looked completely dead it's like a phoenix it can just rise again and again it's really quite fascinating
3: yeah a resilient tree Chris and I were talking earlier how magical it is underneath these trees the canopy is amazing it's very dense if it's if it's gotten some extra rain you're talking about a lot of shade and you and when they're old and you can prune them up if say it's in your yard or so in your habitat your own habitat it's just a Amazing shade tree. And I bet a lot of people sat underneath over the hundreds of years, sat underneath ironwood trees. I bet. As children, we had no problem. An ironwood tree has that magic that draws you. So you're looking, you're peering into this little, you just want to get under there and see what's going on. And you'd be hanging out. Sounds good to me.
0: That's a great example of youth is not wasted on the young (laughs) <laughs> to have the youthfulness to just be with the tree, those it's true. are preci- those are precious, priceless moments that I wish more adults would partake in.
3: You need a child sometime to remind you what life's about, right?
2: Alicia and I were out in one of the washes in Southern California, where the ironwoods grow, a couple of weeks ago, and it was a relatively cool day after a long. Very hot summer. We didn't get any hiking done together for the podcast or recreationally at all for months. But in this ironwood forest, I mean, it was a mixed forest. It had Senegalia and Palo Verde and some mesquites and things like that. But underneath the ironwood trees, there were th- these islands of habitability, yeah. are just absolutely wonderful. They're just ob- obvious coyote bedding places and places where jackrabbits and possibly badgers and Desert kit foxes had dug holes beneath the trees, and it's just—it was like an archipelago on a relatively unfriendly sea of these friendly little shady spots.
3: Yeah, it totally it nailed it. It's to peer under an ironwood. You talk about the magic, and they are—they're nurse trees. So a lot of times, if you're in a, a forest, if you're in the land of saguaros, and you should be, if you're in the land of ironwoods. You'll find baby sowaros You'll find little all sorts of hedgehogs or little fish hooks. But yeah, you just want to crawl in there. And th- you know, if we were kids, we'd be under that tree and hanging out. And that's where we lose that magic of our childhood. Well, yeah, you peer into it. Peer into it. it's almost like looking at those Easter eggs, those bizarre Easter eggs where you could pick them up and peer into them and see all these things <laughs> happening. And where I lived, I just loved getting under them. And you see the pinioceras. I don't even know if it's Is it Gregii anymore? uh, There are two night-blooming cirrus out in between Pima County and Cochise County where I live. But you find a night-blooming cirrus, and then you find baby saguaros. And this was magical. Sometimes you'd find a dead ironwood. So here's this, and the dead ironwoods can last years and years. But here comes this saguaro, three, four-foot saguaro next to a dead ironwood. So it had nursed that that baby saguaro. The ironwood's dead, and here comes that saguaro amazing
2: that happens out at the at the western end of the range too and uh, i have to say one of the reasons that we very much wanted to talk to you is because of the sense of joy that you bring to these things and here we're facing a lot of the westernmost ironwoods having their habitat converted for renewable energy production climate change is real yeah <laughs> but our response to it is up for grabs but it is it's Sometimes difficult to to see these really wonderful, thriving ironwood forests that um, may not survive our response to climate change. Although of the trees that I can think of in the desert, ironwoods, at least in the northwestern end of the range, are probably more likely to survive climate change itself. And a lot of yeah. other things.
3: So I think you're right. Yeah. And you know that we're talking about getting under an ironwood tree. And when you talk about things like that, we want to crawl up under an ironwood tree <laughs> in the fetal position and weep because how much growth is about? I had to drive to Tucson early right. morning meeting. And so I go through this beautiful biotic communities all the way to Tucson, but that town is coming east toward me. And they go, How much further can you keep going? And it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, there are lots of people. People want houses. It's a hard call, and I agree. And to me, the ironwood tree is the tree of the Sonoran Desert. They live hundreds of years. And we're, we take them out so casually. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about that. It upsets me. How do you put it in the back of your mind and get on with your life sometimes? Yeah, but ironwoods, they live to what I think they, they can't really count rings in them. There's this magnificent wood, hard wood. They know they're 300 years at least. I once was on a search. There was a fellow doing the Champion Trees of Arizona, a rumor of an ironwood tree out of south of Gila Bend on an Air Force base on the way, on the way out toward Yuma. And we, they led us onto the base, and we found this tree that three of us could not get our arms around. <laughs> and we wondered, wow. how old is this ironwood tree, and what has it seen in this arroyo? In this Sonoran Desert west of Gila Bend, Arizona. Amazing. I'll tell you one other thing. When I lived in the desert, you, you could pick up the dead ironwood branches with your dead mesquite branches and, and you could burn them in your fire, your wood stove. I had a house where the wind seemed to blow right through it. And so we had a wood stove. But burning ironwood, the smoke smells like the earth itself to me. It just is, it's like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. this smells like soil burning. It's just, I don't know. If I smelled ironwood right now, I could start telling you a dozen stories of campfires where you camp out in an ironwood and break up branches and uh, put them on the fire. Great plant. Ironically, at one point, when charcoal was so popular, mesquite and ironwood were harvested in Mexico and southern Arizona and maybe over your way for charcoal (laughs) <laughs> they just burned these immense yeah. piles of this magical tree. Here's the tree with the history. Obviously, it's older than you and me and beyond. And so, indigenous people used it for everything. That hard wood in the 50s, 60s, somewhere there, the Siri Indians were, the indigenous folks were making beautiful carvings from the hardwood. The wood is amazing. My background is horticulture. And so, in 1980, I got a gig at a wholesale nursery outside Tucson. And we grew baby ironwoods. And people go, oh, they are going to be growing that forever. Well, people forget what horticulture is about, and that's pushing a little crop. Mm-hmm. And ironwoods are very easy to grow from seed. I mean, the seed falls and if monsoon hits, all of a sudden, you got a bunch of little germinating seeds on the ground beneath an ironwood tree. They're not slow in, in cultivation, but what I loved about them—if you tried to prune them—people want we want this tree, single trunk, blah blah blah. <laughs> wherever you need a cut, wherever you need a cut, five branches, spiny branches I might add, five spiny branches would pop out. <laughs> this tree is not taking any guff at all. how low think imagine a jackrabbit or someone nibbling on that tree and. Boom, five branches branch out. It's just, it is just a spiny rascal. So you had to grow it multi trunked and you just did your best you could to work it up into some form into a five gallon bucket that you could sell. And you just told people, you're just going to have to wait. It'll decide what it wants to do. This is not a tree you lollipop. Okay? <laughs> you know, we lived northwest of Tucson. And uh, what sent us running with our tail between our legs was development came and surrounded our our little paradise, literally surrounded us. On the day we left, We'd purchased some land in Cochise County a couple hours to the east. On the day we left, they were pushing over trees with a bulldozer. Mary and my wife was weeping as we drove the U-Haul out of our driveway. But there was an ironwood tree right by our front door. And so many, and sometimes I'd let those suckers off the base get going, and people would always come in with wounds on their wrists and arms. I said, "Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> ironwood tree, off." I think, like, "Yeah, you came too. through the ironwood." And what about when they bloom? April, May, April usually, and it's a lavender flower. Oh. They say, but you get up a, just a hair above the desert floor, on a little hill, and you're looking out across an ironwood forest in bloom, and all of a sudden you notice, oh, wait, that one's a darker purple. It makes you wish you were a, a painter who did watercolors. But here's a sea of lavender, but then dark purple, these splotches. It's just amazing. Yeah, it brings back some, so many fun, fun memories. And I think a lot of it is just the campfires and the smoke. I think it's illegal now to harvest them as firewood. It's one thing to pick up dead branches off the desert floor, but it's another thing to go out and chop them down. And I don't think that's legal anymore. Hallelujah to that. I think that's yeah. That's what it feels like sometimes, but ironwood tree, Olnea tesota, Olnea tesota. So the name, I'm pretty sure the, the genus is named in honors of botanist.
2: Chris here poking my head in post-interview. The genus Olnea was named for the American businessman and botanist, Stephen Thayer Olney, who was from Rhode Island and was a wool merchant for his day job became an expert in carex, which is a monocot, a lot of people mistake for grasses. He was honored with that name by Asa Gray, author of the formerly canonical Gray's Manual of Botany. Back to the interview.
3: The species, a specific epithet, I think is an aberration of a Spanish word for hard or stiff. So it just shows you the wood was used for innumerable things, you know, tools, Gosh, it's amazing. To be a part of it, to luck out in the Sonoran Desert and to be a part of a, uh, an ironwood. They were just lucky.
0: Petey, if you could share with people what you think we could learn from the ironwood tree with all of its attributes.
3: I think the funny thing you learn when you study native plants is that they all had their uses, that they were part of, at some point in history, humans and the plants were together in the deal. <laughs> you go, they're medicinal yeah. uses. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. You say, this guy was a physician and a botanist. Well, of course he was a botanist because physicians didn't order something from the pharmacy. But no, I think that's it. That there's a They're a good example of a plant that we can share something with. To me, if you're in a Sonoran desert, you need to be by an ironwood tree. You need to peer under it and see saguaros popping up, nurse little nursery of a saguaro. So I think that plants teach us, all the plant teaches that, that we're part of it. We're so superior. Sometimes I'm so disgusted with the human race. <laughs> and an ironwood's a good example.
0: Yes, they really remind us that we are part of the cycle. <laughs> you know, being part of the cycle, it seems to, we've completely forgotten.
3: When Chris said, do you want to talk about ironwoods? I said, "Man." It's a tree of a personal history for me, so now I live two hours a hundred miles to the east, and I live in an oak woodland. I wanted to live near an oak woodland, but ironwood trees bring up a bunch of memories, a bunch of memories, a bunch and nothing but good, nothing but good. A long
2: time ago, I was in the ironwood country in eastern California, southeastern California with a woman that would later become my wife and then even later than that become my ex-wife and we were just camping and had the ironwood forest to ourselves miles from the nearest person a tiny little grove of ironwood that we were camping in and some driftwood ironwood that had fallen into the wash maybe six or seven hundred years ago and just stayed there and had a very small campfire maybe the size of a soccer ball yeah and i had to sit seven, eight feet away from it just because it was, it burns so hot.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Ironwood coals. Unbelievable. And they bring back memories like that, what you just gave us. I'm going to start to cry. That, that's good stuff.
0: <laughs> With all the change that you've seen happen in the world, in your life, what keeps you going on a day-to-day basis?
3: When the pandemic started, my wife and I said to each other, it's not hard to isolate where we live because we moved out there to be isolated. But well, we, we said every week, one day a week, we'll take a trip out into the hills. Near us It's the Chiricahua Mountains, the Peloncillo Mountains, the Dosca Cabezas Mountains. But once a week. And we picked Monday because we knew it was a work day for a lot of people. And that's what renewed us. And it was being out in habitat out in a biotic community, out in the Madre, evergreen woodland, the Madrean woodland. It sounds to some of the communities, these biotic communities are almost like poetry when you read, oh, the evergreen Madrean woodland. Good Lord, write me a poem. It's, but that renewed us. To get out in habitat, you just have to get out there. And it sounds corny, but look at the plants, listen to the birds, chase the insects. And I get excited chasing a beetle across the desert floor. So that's what renews me and keeps me going. I lose faith in the human race. Make no mistake. I recently was down east of Douglas, Arizona, on the border. And I have photographs of that wall that will make you weep. Make, at least the three of us would weep. But yeah, here's the answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Getting out. Identify wow. a new plan getting excited about an old plant. Oh, my God, I didn't know it set fruit this time of year. Oh, my God, it's growing with that plant. Oh, my God. And uh, almost a childhood, I laughed one time, Mary and I, uh, Mary and my wife, Marion and I, were looking at blooming. We timed it to this one canyon we call Rainbow Canyon, Rainbow Land, because of the Econoceros there, the Arizona rainbows. And we're laughing as if we probably sound like we're making love or we're walking up this slope and looking at blooming plants oh my god oh Oh, i love this oh my gosh and uh, that's what it's about that's what it's about get out get out embrace plants embrace habitat embrace your biotic community
0: yeah i'm really glad to hear you say that because that's a big message that i want to share with the listeners to our podcast is that nature is the medicine, you know, and I think you're a great example because your enthusiasm comes through in your voice. Your genuine excitement at a beetle scuttling across the road is something that we should take pause and enjoy those moments. And I really appreciate you encouraging us to do so, not only here on our podcast, but on yours as well.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, great. It's true. Get out. Enthusiastic, right? (laughs) Chase Chase (laughs) beetles. Thanks for having me
2: very appreciative of your joining us and of you. Anyone that can spread joy about the natural world right now is someone to be thanked and cherished, and we do.
3: Thank thank you. you so much. I'm lucky to be on. Thanks a lot.
0: These look like baby willows. They do. Or not. Pretty
2: sure that's what that is, in fact.
0: There's another one over there that I'm enjoying working at. I was reading that ironwoods, the numbers are astounding how many different aspects of the environment rely on ironwood to protect it, to shelter it. It attracts more birds to the area, and even though rodents and herbivores take refuge under this tree, the way that it, its thorny branches create these little cages of protection for baby mesquites, or willows, or there was some nettle over there, something. No, it's not nettle.
2: That looks like a currant or gooseberry of some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are underneath an ironwood tree. I took our friend Petey Mesquite's comment about if we were children, we would climb under the tree as a personal challenge. I'm certain he did not mean it that way, but I'm also certain that if he was here, he would be under this tree with us right now. For sure. We are not far from Corn Springs, which is an oasis in the middle of the Chukwala Mountains in the northern edge of the Sonoran Desert in Southern California. And this wash, it looks like it's about a quarter mile wide. There's 20-foot cliffs on either side. And we have, in addition to ironwood, we have smoke trees and... Calaverdes and a couple of mesquites and some desert willows. And it's just a really beautiful day in mid-November in the California desert.
0: Bright and sunny, but brisk and cool. And I think it is
2: pretty fitting that we started out our first season of this podcast sitting in an ironwood forest. We weren't underneath the tree, but we were next to it. And it took us an entire year and 22 episodes to actually work our way underneath the tree. <laughs> it's a good place to contemplate and look at these pretty blue-gray leaves, and think about the riches that the tree provides, and sort of pat ourselves on the back for the, the learning curve that we've tackled in the good episodes of the podcast that we've put out.
0: Do you see that gall, though?
2: That is very cool. There is a branch above our heads that is probably an average of about three and a half inches thick, but there's a gall that is about the size of...
0: I'd say a volleyball.
2: Yeah, s- somewhere in between volleyball and county fair prize winning grapefruit.
0: These branches over here are really tripping me out because it looks like they started to swell like they were going to have a gall, but then they died. You mm-hmm. see what's going on yep. over here? They look like little Popeye biceps.
2: I have that song going through my head now.
0: <laughs> Don't sing it out loud whatever you do.
2: There probably is wild spinach in this squash, or at least amaranth.
0: Plenty of edibles if you know what you're looking for. The flowers for the native bees a dense canopy for nesting of white winged dove and other birds. The tree trunks act as trellis for vines, which we're seeing that. There's little viney guys growing around us that are starting to make their way up into the tree. The shade that it gives underneath is protection against sunburn for the night blooming Sirius. Leaf litter provides nitrogen and organic matter for soil enrichment. Deep roots hold the soil banks in place. There's the pumping of nitrogen and minerals from the lower soil strata through the root structure. Symbiotic bacteria and fungi create islands of fertility. There's seeds for dove, quail, and rodents at the base. Burrows for tortoises in and around the roots. A wildflower nursery foraged by rabbits and bighorn. Protection against freezes for the suaro and cenita. Leaves for forage for bighorn sheep, pronghorn, and mule deer. And the upper branches are roosting sites for hawks and owls. It's amazing how it is such a, it's such a positive force for the environment around it. It's giving all these nutrients to the soil. It's providing protection for certain species. It's providing advantageous positioning for predators, food, shade. You know? This is like the giving tree.
2: Uh-oh, you know what happened to the giving tree.
0: No, <laughs> I good done and forgot. <laughs>
2: it's, it's not a happy ending.
0: Okay, let's find another word. Uh, let's go to Middle Eastern this is culture the tree and of say life. the tree of life, baby, <laughs> yeah. Here's, the, here's a bit on the native uses. High protein nourishment comes from their shiny brown seeds. Many Indian tribes toast and grind the seeds to make a protein-rich flour or gruel that tastes suspiciously like peanut butter. Other parts of the plant have been used through the centuries for various things. Native Americans ground the roots into a paste to cure gum infections. They made tea from the crushed leaves to help relieve asthma, and the inner bark was used as an emetic or agent to induce vomiting. The wood was used for fence posts, charcoal, and firewood, and they also made tool handles, trinkets, and arrowheads out of the hardwood.
2: I just heard a Phanopepla. Is that what you heard? Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, there it is.
2: Yep. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Oh,
0: there it is it's talking to me.
2: There's a ton of mistletoe in this ironwood. The is, I'd like to call it an inside-out cardinal because instead of being a red bird with a crest and black eyes, it's a black bird with a crest and red eyes. But the phenopepla is one of those birds that has very particular ideas about what is proper food.
0: It's the only critter out here that eats the mistletoe berries because of their toxicity, from what I understand.
2: Yep, so it eats the mistletoe berries and it sits on a branch and poops out the previous lunch of mistletoe berries and those seeds germinate and they send roots into the stem of whatever tree that they are pasted to by the bird poop.
0: Perfect little poop packets of fertilizer and seeds.
2: And instead of roots actually what they send out are haustoria, that is the technical term for the thing they have instead of roots because they
0: kind of hair-like extensions that embed into the branch.
2: Right and they get into the vascular tissue of the plant. And that's where that mistletoe is gonna live. And there are a couple of different species of it here. And this one is, I will splice in an incongruous sounding cut of me saying the actual species of this mistletoe, which is phorodendron californicum. But it's the one that does not have leaves on it. It's just sort of scaly former leaves on long stems and it turns red, bright red berries
0: it's pretty clear that that part of this tree is dying or is dead and that mistletoe is going downhill with it because that does not look like very healthy mistletoe to me.
2: No, Kind of a good metaphor. We live by claiming the productivity of other species for ourselves and nothing wrong with that. That's what we were evolved to do. We were evolved to eat other organisms and we learned how to use pieces of other organisms for tools and things like that. But if the stuff that we live off of starts to decline then we are in trouble
0: as feverishly as we've been trying this is all we've got and why we're rushing to destroy it that sandstone bank on the other side is we're gonna have to walk over there before we leave because i bet there's a lot of good stuff to look at on that wall yeah i think of earth's history books those are her pages I'm wondering if these are antlion holes over here or if these are just dribble marks from the tree branches. I'm thinking it's the latter.
2: Kind of looks that way. Yeah.
0: That just goes to show you how much moisture is coming from these areas that you'd get. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Just right here within three, twelve, this water just literally pouring off this tree. I was reading that it's, there's a four degree different temperature difference inside the protective nest of the canopy. Mm -hmm. So when it's freezing, plants that would usually freeze in cacti, that four degrees is all the difference in the world. And the same with sunburn. When an ironwood gets cut down and there's a young baby saguaro under there, it'll get sunburned and just die really quickly without Mm -hmm. the protection. That early life protection, mother tree of life.
2: So we've kind of come full circle with this season of the podcast and seems like it might be a good idea to talk a little bit about not only what we've accomplished with this part of the podcast and maybe what we like about that but also think a little bit about what we'd like to do coming up i would say that i am personally very grateful to all of the people that have done shout outs to us and certainly for everybody that has supported us materially and we'll talk about that some more but the word of mouth thing has been really wonderful it's been very gratifying that people have seen some value in what we're doing and decided to decided to share it around
0: you know what i say about word of mouth right it's free and priceless yep so y'all use your little talk boxes because that's the most valuable way to spread the love for nature and our podcast
2: (laughs) and especially in that regard other desert radio which is otherdesertradio.com. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm Just so delighted that they have chosen to re-air some of our episodes on their online radio station. And just the more people we get doing stuff like that, the I think the better, better job we're going to be doing of just getting out to people, but even people that have just been sharing our episodes and our listenership just keeps getting larger and larger. It's slow. We're not breaking the thousands per episode yet of, of listeners at least not in the first month that they're up. But I think, you know, we have a highly targeted and specialized group of listeners who are devoted. And not only could we not do this without those of you who are listening, but there would be no
0: point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. For me, I feel like the body of work that we're putting together episode by episode that we add is building the case. And when you look at it as a data set, it gives people a really good chunk of information about the desert mm-hmm. that as a newer pod, we haven't even completed our first year. We're very close, but there wasn't a body of work for people to, I mean, with you, people had a body of work to identify, but you brought a, a co-host into the mix and you know, the people getting to know me and getting to know these issues that we wanna focus on. And now that we have a body of work behind us, I feel like from here on out, it's gonna be easier to grow our audience. It's gonna be easier because When people are communicating with each other about issues that are important to them, there's a body of work for them to reference to for us. There's not just two or three episodes or six. There's going to be more than 20. And every month that we go through, we're adding more and more data for people to reference. That's one of the foundations of our friendship was your body of work, I would reference to educate my friends and family on. And that's just the word of mouth growing for something that we're all passionate about as human beings, it's hard to deny our own environment. So even though it's specialized to the desert, I feel like as we continue to produce, we're going to continue to grow. We may not have numbers that are intergalactic and shocking and exciting, but I don't really know what we would do with that in the first few months anyway. I feel like we, we're getting our sea legs about us in this first year. Yeah.
2: And getting the best listeners first
0: yeah it's a really exciting process you know getting this all getting our flow and getting it all together and seeing that there is interest
2: and that's just going to keep getting bigger and better well i have to say that this podcast and this season of this podcast would have been very different and i think not nearly as good if it wasn't for my absolute favorite co-host being part of it whom i love dearly
0: ah thank you chris
2: it was so you just bring this point of view to it where you're you don't claim to be an expert in things even though I think of you as an expert in quite a few areas of desert studies but you ask questions that are really important to ask that I forget to even address because I've been doing this for so long that I assume everybody knows what an Inselberg is. (laughs) I've been doing the activism thing for so long and I just take for granted that it's always about people making money and lying and I skip over that part and you bring it around when appropriate to saying, yeah, this is just about some asshole getting rich at the expense of the planet. And I forget to say that. <laughs> yeah. And I just...
0: You've been mired in the politics, yeah. and the inner workings of it, and I have no exposure to that. So the, yeah, these are all raw outside observations, whereas you're so deeply entrenched in that world.
2: Yeah. I was flying over the Grand Canyon... And, of course, I got the window seat because I was flying over the fucking Grand Canyon and going from Las Vegas to Denver for work meetings and just over the canyon country at sunset and looking down and seeing the mouth of the Grand Canyon where it flows out into the Mojave at the Grand Wash Cliffs and just absolutely beautiful. And I was looking down at one section of this plain where there were streams that had been flowing across the surface of the earth. And then the ground started to rise. And these streams had just been meandering, you know, these big U-shaped swoops back and forth. And it was just to uh, wherever the path of least resistance was across the plain. Maybe. But
0: that's also a water force pattern. I forget what it's called. That pattern is what will create oxbow lakes. Because the exactly water just right. has to push and then change course. And it just has to switch back for some reason. I right. forget the term for that. But,
2: but it's, it's the kind of thing that when it's happening on the surface... A small change can make a big change in the flow. Yeah. You could throw a basketball-sized rock into a stream that's 10 feet across, and that can change the flow patterns to the point where a quarter mile downstream, it is 100 feet off of its previous course. And then it will eventually loop back around and rejoin. It's just a, it's a lovely aspect of how physics just shapes the planet. But in this particular spot, these meanders happened thousands of years ago. And the earth beneath them started rising. Hmm. And so the streams were higher than they had been, and they just started cutting down into the soil and then into the rock. And now there are slot canyons that follow the path of these old meanders, and the geologists call them entrenched meanders. Hmm. And it's just a fossilization of a pattern that existed... Because of fluid dynamics, just because of the way water flows across the surface that is almost level. But then something changed and just literally set these patterns in stone. And they carved themselves into the rock. And now you look down and it's just this series of really familiar looking goosenecks. But they have canyons that are 50 or 100 or 250 feet deep. Hmm. And it's just, I was thinking about that as such a useful metaphor for a lot of things we do in life. Because we just we start doing something for a particular reason. The cafe we wanted to go to is closed and there's another one that's half a block away that we haven't tried before, so we try that. And then eight years later, we go to that second cafe as a a habit and we don't even think about it. You wanna get a cup of coffee, so we go there and we pass the one that we had been going to previously. And it's just, I don't think that there's anything particularly bad about that. It is human nature for some humans. But just thinking about it with fresh eyes looking at— are we really in a trench here or is this just the way that we happen to be flowing at the moment and we can change that up if we want
0: i was gonna say it's entrenched meander sounds like a philosophical discussion from a point of view it also sounds like a really good band name yep philosophical instrumental music that makes you question your very existence Being alive feels like an entrenched meander.
2: So if we lift ourselves outside of the entrenched meander that we may or may not have set with this season of the podcast, Mm. what would you like to see us do next year, in the next season, or seasons to come?
0: The same thing we do every season, Pinky. Continue to ignite passion in our listeners for conservation of the desert.
2: (laughs) Ooh, a cultural reference.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for me, that's my goal, is to just show up with my honest bare self and talk about how important nature is to me and how important nature is to you and everybody everything that is alive on this planet how we are all connected that is the banner i'll carry till the day i die is we need to pay attention be vigilant and steward our world and i will just continue to find new and creative ways to do that
2: and i like the idea of elevating the voices of people that are also doing that. Yes. You know, we've talked to a lot of really wonderful people for this season that are doing great work. We've just scratched the surface of people that are doing amazing work in the desert.
0: It just blew by. We have such a long running list of people that we keep adding that we want to talk to and we want to do it now. But <laughs> there's it's just a never-ending, exciting list of, of other advocates that we honor and cherish and want to put on the stage to talk about their perspective. And we've got a lifetime of work ahead of us, really
2: and the work of a lifetime.
0: Yep. Bet you didn't know that she goes both ways. What goals do you have for next season?
2: I want to get more voices involved. I want us to have some teammates, maybe people that are in the business of writing commentaries for newspapers on their own campaigns. I'd love to get them to think about recording versions of that and sending them to us. I'd like to see if we can harness some of the talent that's around in the desert The desert has more than its share of musicians and visual artists and poets and i just feel like we we could be amplifying their work and they could be amplifying us sometimes with literal amplifiers i would really like to see a couple of live events
0: i was just thinking of the live event aspect that you brought up it would be so fun to have a sort of desert showcase where we had all sorts of different characters come up to share their part of the desert. Mm -hmm. Like like a variety show, but for nature instead of
2: glamour. So if you're listening to this and you have an idea of a place in the desert that would be suitable for hosting a 90 miles from needles live show and event, let us know and we could actually set up a tour if it came to that. It's not that hard to get from here to Tucson or to Moab. It just was in Moab. It was easy. (laughs) Big Bend. Now, Big Bend, we'd probably need to find a financial sponsor just because that's a distance and that would be some gasoline and some time off work, but.
0: And some pet sitters. <laughs>
2: yep. Yeah. I can totally see us doing a couple of live shows. I think that if we just spent a day beforehand planning something out on the theme of, for instance, the desert is not empty space, that we could fill 90 minutes of a live show and have people laughing and have people offering from ideas from the audience or asking questions that other audience members might answer. Have a line of people at the microphone saying, this is more of a comment than a question. Mm. Bring it. So we'd really like to thank everyone who has contributed in a substantial or tangible way to the success of this podcast.
0: Yes. Time to give credit where credit is due.
2: So here's a bit of a list, but we'll try to make it we'll try to make it lively. Adan Lopez, Adrian Slade, and Alan Mason.
0: Anne Graham and Kelly, Arch McCulloch. And I owe Arch
2: some jokes about backpacking stoves. Which they do exist.
0: Coming at you, Arch.
2: Yep. Bonnie Brady. Homegirl him, Joshua Tree, Brandon Braun and Home- Brent.
0: That's my homeboy, Brandon Braun. Yeah.
2: All right. And Brendan Cummings, a big friend of the podcast who's been on a couple of times.
0: Hometown homeboy. Brett Berry, Brett- Brian Fies, Cameron Mayer.
2: Cara Barbaro, good old friend from the Earth First Days in Berkeley. Carol Corbett and Carolyn Conway.
0: Kat Lazarop.
2: Kat is one of those old friends I've never actually met in person. Ah. But she does great work. She's a great journalist.
0: Pen pals do exist. Yep. Kathy Davies, Charles Peterson.
2: And Charlie keeps us honest. Charlie was like our second Patreon supporter. <laughs> and he's, I think he's given more money to us than anybody. And he routinely emails me to let me know when we need to do a little bit of a fact check. And uh-huh. that's, that is such an important thing. Yeah. And And we also need to have a beer with him or something similar. Sounds good. Christiana Saldana and Chuck George and the amazing Cody Hanford, another great friend.
0: Here's a familiar name. Coral Clark. Love you, sister. sis. Love you. Daryl Evans, Deborah Bollinger.
2: Geordis Serkanowitz from Desert Survivors. Derek Loranger and Eric Hamburg, Wonder Valley neighbor and good friend.
0: Wonder Valleyites in the house. Eve Brown. Florian Boyd and Fred Bell.
2: Florian is an old hiking buddy, local in Palm Springs, Palm Springs born and bred. Gary Spears, my colleague on the board of the Mojave National Preserve Conservancy. And Gloria Putnam, who has the best goat related Airbnb in the entire desert.
0: All right.
2: (laughs) And Heather Hurley. Chris jumping in later with a quick note here after we recorded this. I learned that my longtime online friend Heather Hurley, resident of Indio, native of Boron, California, who I've been talking to online for 20 years or so, passed away in October after a long, long illness, and we are going to miss her. Thanks for everything, Heather.
0: Heather Summerfield, Meet Singh, and Jeff Hunter.
2: Jeff is a colleague of mine from NPCA, and Jasmine has been corresponding with us, giving us great feedback and advice.
0: Excellent. Thank you.
2: Jim Stanger, who I got to see this week over at the Aviquame National Monument hearing, the BLM held in Laughlin.
0: John Griesimer and John Patzold. John and Darlene Lundstrom. John Norris. Judith Lynn LaFoon.
2: And I got to meet John and Darlene in Moab this year. Great folks. Judy Fennerty another wonderful local, and Juniper Harrower, Joshua Tree expert and artist, and Justin Tappen. Hope you're doing well, Justin.
0: Uvenio Guerra, Karen Tracy, and Carl Young. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: All great friends. Kathleen Case, Kathy Holmes, of the Shields and Holmes household, wonderful person, and Ken Ganku Cleland Erickson, longtime pen pal.
0: Chris Zarnock, Lorraine Turk and Laura Cunningham.
2: Thanks, Chris, for the wonderful editing advice and consulting early on in the podcast. Leland and Kim Garrison-Means, Linda Gibson, and Lisa Morgan of Joshua Tree Voice.
0: Hey, Kim and Leland. And hey, Joshua Tree Voice. Let's see, we've got Lori Witzel, Lorraine Suzuki, and Luis Mathias.
2: We need to get Louise reading some of her poetry on the podcast. Luana Lynch, our old neighbor in the old neighborhood. Lynette Millette and Lynn Sweet, another Joshua Tree expert. Okay. (laughs) Maru Sudankati. Man, I miss you, Maru. We need to hang out. Marisa Monroe and Marianne Ruiz, who is a dynamite desert activist. I take my clues from her Mm. about how to do things.
0: Mary Buxton. Mason Vale, Matthew Woodman,
2: Mira Lee Sethi, Mike Kaufman, and Michael Gordon. God, got a lot of friends on here.
0: Michael Mack, Michael Stillman, and Michelle Simmons.
2: Michelle is the northernmost desert rat that I know of up in above the Canadian border. Oh, boy. In the Great Plains. Moises Cisneros. Hola, compañero. We should hang out. Monica Gorman, likewise, and Monica Mahoney. We still owe each other a hike, I think.
0: We've got a Miss Natalie Pearl patch on the list. That would be my mother, my most beautiful mother. Thank you so much for your support. No surprise there. Always supporting her daughter. Pam McCann, Parker James Lloyd.
2: And Pam McCann would be my mother if she was several decades older, but we did actually... Meet at a demonstration in San Francisco against the very first Gulf War. So we have a we have a back. long activist friendship. Here's a familiar name, the Patch Spine Center.
0: Hey, Warren. Thank you for your support.
2: Patrick O'Driscoll and Raya Buchanan.
0: Robert Bagel. Ryan Baird. Essender underscore P.
2: Ryan Baird, incidentally, I heard playing bass in a string quintet a few days ago, and he is part of a fantastic group of people playing really wonderful music. Sam Easley, Sarah Carden. Sarah is our very first Patreon supporter. She's still with us. Wow. Thank you, thank Sarah. You. And Sarah Jane Kennington, another wonderful local dynamite activist, former president of the board of the Morongo Basin Conservation Association. Wonderful person.
0: Scott Fajak, Sean Sharp, and Sergey Konizenko.
2: Troy Arden, Tenkai Karia, and Terry McGlynn. Thank you, thank you.
0: Todd, with a double D. Thank you, Todd. Travis Puglisi. Thank you, Travis. We love you. And Yaney McIver.
2: And Yaney is another wonderful activist from up in the Owens Valley, Mono County, Inyo County area. And then a shout out to Atlasphere and Yosaku.
0: I'm willing to bet Atlasphere is Tad.
2: Thank you, Mr. Atlasphere. That's wonderful. And honestly, folks, we couldn't have done this season without you. You bought some gas, you bought some equipment, you kept us going. Most importantly, perhaps you made us realize that there were people out in the world that thought this was worth doing and were willing to back it up with some cash. And so just thank you, thank you. Thanking the people who have joined us for interviews. Patrick Donnelly, as always, my brother from another mother, just Really inspired by your work. Kyle Rohrink, the Great Basin Water Network, doing some amazing work there. Brendan, probably Brendan is, I think Brendan is the person we've had on most often with two interviews. Susan Sorel's, the inimitable Susan Sorel's, savior of the Shoshone pupfish. Yeah. And Mason Vale, who stepped in to provide some much needed context for Amargosa Basin and Shoshone pupfish conservation.
0: Let's not forget our first road trip interview, Jan Eming at the Desert Sense Nursery. <laughs>
2: yep. Out there in Yucca, Arizona. And we had Zach Frankel from the Utah Rivers Council talking about the Great Salt Lake drying up and a little bit about overdrafting of the Colorado River. We wish him well.
0: Drew Kaiser dropping some knowledge on us about how to steward the Joshua trees out at Cima Dome.
2: Taking good care of all of the plants at Mojave National Preserve and being an awesome guy. We had Lewis Zahagan, the L.A. Times environmental journalist of many decades, telling us about threats to the wonderful bristlecone pines in the California desert.
0: Christian Daniels with the Desert Balloon Project.
2: Did an amazing interview, and he's doing some amazing work keeping those mylar balloons from lingering in the desert in southern Nevada. David Smith. David Smith. The indefatigable superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park.
0: Who has an endless supply of enthusiasm that we should all tap into.
2: When there's not a pandemic, I run into him sometimes late at night in the gym in 29 Palms, and he's just beating the hell out of the treadmill. (laughs) It's like he he has uh, this incredible stressful work day, and then he goes out and he just, he runs a marathon on the treadmill at night. Life goals that I will never make. Special, really heartfelt thank you to Matt Levis of the, the Chamuevi, who met us out at Ward Valley to talk about our lamentably lost friend, Phil Klasky, desert activist. A highlight of this season, I think, was having Matt on for that episode. Shannon Salter, thanks for letting us come to your event and and record what was going on there. And I was just in a meeting early this morning in which we were talking about solar development all around Yellow Pine Solar. There's 20,000 acres of proposed solar in that valley, and it's going to be, it's going to be intense. Definitely need to have Shannon on answering some questions in season two early on. The penultimate episode of this season, we were joined by Tim Shields and Luke Basulto, who told us a lot of interesting, depressing, and hope-raising stuff about desert tortoises.
0: I think there was a lot of positivity in that episode. And Petey Mesquite from the Growing Native podcast, neighboring us over there in Arizona, spreading the desert love.
2: Thank you all so much for joining us this year.
3: Hi, I'm Heather Hurley. I grew up in Boron, California, and I currently live in
0: Indio. I think the desert is beautiful because there's a
3: stark and subtle sort of atmosphere that's different from any place on earth every time you step out your door into the desert you see something else that's just amazing thank you
2: we'll see you in january folks thanks for listening
0: thanks y'all see you next year
1: This episode of 90 Miles from Needles was produced by Alicia Pike and Chris Clark. Editing by Chris. Podcast artwork by the remarkable Martine Mancha. Theme music is by Brightside Studio. Other music by Slipstream. Find our social media accounts at 90milesfromneedles.com slash social. Subscribe to our email newsletter at 90milesfromneedles.com slash newsletter. Listen to us at 90milesfromneedles.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear us at otherdesertradio.com. Help us by leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Garland Kirkpatrick, Lisa Lynn Morgan, Carol Corbett, Atlasphere, John and Darlene Lundstrom, Ryan Beard, and Adrian. Support this podcast by visiting us at 90milesfromneedles.com slash Patreon and making a monthly pledge of as little as five bucks. Or visit 90milesfromneedles.com slash K-O-F-I to make a one-time contribution. Our supporters enjoy privileges including early access, to this episode. Crucial support for this podcast came from Tad Coffin and Laura Roselle. All characters on this podcast are all characters on this podcast. This is Bouse Parker, reminding you the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is with a progressive army veteran and a drag queen in heels. See you next time.
3: Sit, heart, sit. Good dog.